Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Hey, folks. Before I uh, get going, oh, that was my chair. I just want to give a big thank you to everyone who listens, basically. A few weeks ago, I put out, uh, I don't know, a call to arms, if you would say, I guess, for, you know, just send me some emails, a review, and you did not disappoint. The influx of reviews and emails that I got was mind-blowing, so please, keep it up. It really does make my day. And to any of the new listeners who, you know, listened to the first episode and decided I'm going to stick around, because... I go back occasionally and listen to some of my older stuff, and not that this sound quality or my sound editing and things like that is groundbreaking, because it's still god-awful if you ask me, but it's gotten better. It's definitely gotten better than what it was, so thank you for sticking around, and it's only going to get better from here, I promise, and the reason why it's going to get better is because of all you guys, so again, thank you, thank you so much. So keep those kind words coming, and I promise to do my best to give you guys some stories that warrant those kind words. So again, and probably a hundred more times after this, thank you. All right, let's get busy. Cemeteries. No matter where you find them, they all have one thing in common. No, it's not a place where city workers go and eat their lunch in peace. Wait, did I just let the cat out of the bag? For many years, I worked for a utilities company in New York. And I was shocked when one day, when lunchtime came around, the man I was working with, who was an old-timer with the company, he brought me to a cemetery to eat. I thought it was a prank. I thought he was playing with me. But once we pulled in, I saw why. It was quiet. It was shady. And it was out of the public view. I can't begin to tell you the amount of times I'd be digging into my sandwich and someone would knock on my window asking me, is there an electrical problem on the street? I understand the concern, but let me eat my salami. 
While sitting there parked in my normal spot in front of a tombstone that ironically had the name Croak written on it, I would watch other city employees, police, and EMS workers pull in, park, and do the same. Now, the thing that they have in common is really the creep factor. No matter how nicely the grounds are maintained and how beautiful the landscaping is, there's always this unsettling feeling that's thick in the air, for me at least. Something in the back of your mind telling you that this is the last stop. Today we're going to meet John Quincy, a cemetery caretaker with an extraordinary gift. So please, if you'd be so kind, I'd like you to accompany me on a voyage through imagination, a place that lies just between shadow and light, where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Cemetery superstition. And boy, are there a bunch of them. You may have heard the phrase, someone just walked over my grave. You know, you get an unexplained chill or a feeling of dread that just comes over you. This superstition was birthed sometime during the Victorian era. Where it was very common to stumble upon graves whenever people were putting up new homes or a new construction project started. Since most burials took place on private property. I mean, today, people still refuse to walk on or even near graves for fear of disrupting the dead. Another one is that graves shouldn't stay open overnight. In the past, people thought that death would come to the community if this happened. Which, in reality, this was really just a practical warning. With the lack of streetlights back then, you could easily just walk into a hole on somebody's property without even seeing it. Oddly enough, though, Walking by an open grave was also seen as a way to cure common health problems, and people would go out of their way to pass one by. Being near one, or even inside one, was thought to cure illnesses like toothaches, boils, and incontinence. I remember one from when I was a kid, and uh, we used to pass a cemetery on our way to school. And every kid on the bus would hold their breath and try to keep it held while we passed the cemetery. Now, I just thought this was something silly, but... That's something, you know, something that kids did. But now looking into it, there was a reason. Because if you didn't hold your breath, you ran the risk of breathing in the soul of someone who recently died. Or you would make the dead jealous that you were still breathing, and they would latch on to you. Regardless of whether the burial took place in public or private, do yourself a favor and pay close attention to the flowers on the grave. If wildflowers appear naturally, the dead was a good person who went on to heaven. On the other hand, a dusty grade with weeds growing all over it? I don't think I have to tell you where they went. Today, most people have abandoned that superstition. But still, people place both real and artificial flowers as a sign of respect for their lost loved ones. In many cultures, graves are sacred spaces, and they're often thought of as a place where spirits reside. In Hawaii, you're not to ever point at a grave or a tombstone. If you do... Locals believe that a spirit will latch onto you. Not only that, but they will never let go, and you'll be stuck with this stray spirit for the rest of your life. If you've ever attended or even passed by a funeral procession on the way to a cemetery, you might have been tempted to count the number of cars that followed behind the hearse. According to North American superstition, counting those cars could be a little risky. The number of cars supposedly equals the number of days you have left to live. In many parts of the world, passing a funeral procession may offer bad luck. 
though following a funeral procession, is supposed to ward off bad energy. For those of you out there who are looking to road trip around this beautiful country of ours, and want to maybe cross some strange cemeteries off your list, well, I got a couple for you. Like the Vampire of Lafayette Cemetery. Perhaps it's not surprising that a grave with Born in Transylvania etched on it would invite vampire comparisons. Hmm. Local legends say that a tree growing over this grave in Lafayette, Colorado, sprung from the stake that killed the vampire inside the casket. And that also the red rose bushes nearby are his bloody fingernails. Locals also report sightings of a tall, slender man in a dark coat with jet black hair and long fingernails who can be seen wandering around the grave. The abandoned Forest Park Cemetery, also known as Pinewood Cemetery, near Troy, New York, is known for several urban legends. One of the strangest concerns local taxi drivers, who say they pick up fares nearby asking to go home, only to have the passenger mysteriously vanish when they drive past the cemetery. Others tell of a decapitated angel statue that bleeds from its neck. But the strangest part of the grounds is the dilapidated mausoleum, said to be home to a green glowing light that is often seen right where the coffin used to be located. Famous voodoo queen Marie Laveau is buried in arguably the oldest and most famous cemetery in New Orleans, St. Louis Cemetery No. 1. For years, visitors hoping to earn Marie's supernatural assistance would venture there and mark three large X's on her mausoleum. However, in 2014, restoration of her tomb removed all of the X's. And there's actually now a substantial fine in place for anyone who dares to write on her tomb. The Union Cemetery in Milheim, Pennsylvania has one of the nation's weirder headstones. It bleeds. The grave belongs to 19th century local William, or Daniel, depending on who you ask, Musser, whose descendants tried to replace the tombstone repeatedly, but the blood just kept coming back. It kept pouring out over the top until they added an iron plate on top of it. If you have one more trip left in you, head on down and visit Smiley's Ghost in Garland, Texas. A single plot in the Mill Cemetery is home to five members of the Smiley family, who all died on the same day. Rumor has it that if you lie down on that grave at midnight, especially on Halloween, you'll find it very difficult to get back up. They say the ghost of Old Man Smiley tries to pull you down, hoping to add one more member to his family's eternal resting place. Halloween's awesome. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, 
you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. The Quincy family of Southern Pennsylvania dealt in death. No, they weren't assassins. They owned and operated one of the oldest mortuaries in the United States. The family opened their doors officially in 1779, first operating as a funeral home and using up the plot of land they owned as a cemetery. Once the land filled up, they converted part of their building to handle cremations. Eventually, they acquired more land across town and offered their clients both options. The business has been passed down through the generations, with the current Quincy lineage being made up of Hatcher, or Hatch as he's called around town, his wife Joanne, and their two children, Miles and Rebecca. Growing up around death all the time isn't as difficult or as damaging as you would think for children. It's all in how you're raised. Unfortunately for them, they had great parents. Unfortunately for Hatch, his kids had zero interest in the family business. It was on Rebecca's 14th birthday. Hatch at the ripe age of 51, and Joanne being only two years his junior, that they got news that a third Quincy would be joining their flock. In the early fall, their son Jonathan was born. John was a great baby. He wasn't fussy, and he almost immediately slept all through the night. Joanne and Hatch thanked their lucky stars, and they also had one more crack at someone to willingly take the family business on one day. And as it would turn out, Jonathan wasn't afraid of death. In fact, it fascinated him. Not in the lock your bedroom doors when you sleep and hide the kitchen knives kind of way. He just wanted to learn about it. He was very curious. What happens to you when you die? Where do you go? And all the other questions that a curious kid who grew up around the cemetery would have. You can all relate to that. Right? Understanding that death was just a natural progression to life made Jonathan fear it much less than kids his age, much to the chagrin of his parents. Johnny, as he wanted to be called now, was a bit of a daredevil. Their home sat on the grounds of their cemetery. Hatch served as the grounds caretaker while Joanne dealt with the customers. That's a weird way to put it, but that's essentially what they are. Clients. That sounds better. Joanne dealt with the clients. Wearing multiple hats as funeral director and mortician. The older kids, right up until they left for college, helped with the books and floral arrangements. As soon as Johnny could walk, he haunted the grounds of the cemetery. He would play around the tombstones and hide inside mausoleums. On his eighth birthday, his parents bought him a brand new bike. He proceeded to build a ramp and place it on the side of a freshly dug grave at the cemetery the family had down the road. In his attempt to jump the hole off his crudely built ramp, the legs of it buckled and he took a spill and just barely missed falling into the hole. His new bike wasn't so lucky. He walked the half mile or so home with bloody elbows to get his dad to fish the bike out of the hole. For his ninth birthday, his parents bought him a cat. The boy needed a companion. He didn't have many friends on the account the other kids were kind of freaked out when they learned that he lived in a cemetery. And his siblings were so much older and they were already out of the house, forging their own path by then. It was a black cat that had one white paw on its right hind leg that he affectionately named Mr. Sacco. He was a big McFoley wrestling fan at the time. Unfortunately, cats as companions are hit or miss and Mr. Sacco was very much a loner. 
But that didn't stop Johnny from trying his very best. He would spend his time outside with the cat. Well, with it was a stretch. It was more like he spent his time following the cat or looking for the cat. But you know what? He enjoyed it. He treated it as a game. On a gray summer afternoon, Johnny was out playing when he spotted Mr. Sacco perched up in a tree. The wind was picking up and the cat was mewing nervously. A summer thunderstorm was rolling in and Johnny wanted to make sure the cat got indoors. He started to climb up after him as the rain began to fall. The branches were becoming slick as he hugged his body around the thick one that Mr. Sacco sat upon. His mother was at the back door shouting his name for him to get inside as the thunder crashed overhead. The wind gusted and blew the screen door back into Joanne's face. She opened it up again just in time to see the lightning strike the tree and Johnny's limp body hit the earth. The panic-stricken parents rushed over to him to find him bleeding from the head and unconscious. He stayed that way for almost two days. The doctors at the hospital said he suffered a concussion and back sprain. The doctors also discovered a heart defect that could have possibly went undiscovered if not for this accident. So, silver lining? Johnny was never the same, though, after his fall. He wasn't his adventurous self. He really couldn't be. He was told that any real strain or shock to his heart could potentially be fatal. He became quiet and just kind of strolled around the grounds after that. It wasn't until March when the boy discovered just how much he had changed. Now, before I continue, there really is no way to confirm that this happened to Johnny after his accident. He could have very well been born like this. He just didn't discover it until after. Spring hadn't quite sprung yet in their sleepy little town. The ground still frosted over most mornings, and the grass was only just beginning to peak with life. It was a foggy Saturday morning, and Johnny was up early. He loved to walk the grounds when the fog hung low like this. Mr. Sacco followed the boy outside, like he always did, but that was really the extent to Mr. Sacco's loyalty. The cat very much did his own thing. Johnny didn't even remember that the cat followed him out until he heard it. A slight thump, followed by a wet crunch of bones being crushed under a tire. The pickup truck didn't even slow down. Johnny sprinted toward the road to find his little friend in a heap. A warm pooling of blood flowing from its open mouth. Steam rising off it in contrast with the cool morning air. Its torso was flattened. The boy bent down near the cat. Its white paw was dirty and flecked with red. A normal child may have run away from the sight or scream for their parents, but Johnny was curious. He was very upset, but he also respected death. He scooped up the cat into his hands to bring him near the house for a proper burial. The feline's hips felt like a damp beanbag in the boy's arms. That's when something strange happened. Almost as soon as Johnny picked up the cat, Mr. Sacco sat up in his arms and looked at the boy. Johnny released the cat and it fell to the ground, landing on all fours a little clumsily. Then the cat did something that it has never done before. It sat right at the boy's feet, just staring up into his face. Johnny backed up a few steps, and the cat followed. Johnny backed up again and told the cat to stay, and it did it. He called it forward, and it began walking toward the boy. He told it to stop and sit, and the cat did just that. Over the next 15 minutes or so, he had the cat doing all kinds of tricks that this pet would have never done. It was listening to every word he said. And then on minute 14, the cat fell over and left this world forever. He buried his little friend under the big old tree that he loved to climb so much. The same one that Johnny fell out of, and he tacked a small piece of wood on it with the cat's name. The faded board is still there today. 
Johnny didn't speak to his parents about this at all. Not only did he think they'd never believe him, but it also scared him. It took him five years before he tried it again. In the early 1980s, southern Pennsylvania and western New Jersey were in the midst of a potential serial killer. The Philadelphia, or Cherry Hill Strangler, depending on which state you were from, was terrorizing the residents in the scariest way possible, by not having any rhyme or reason behind the killings. The victims shared almost no similarities. Men, women, young, old, black, white, it didn't matter. Whoever it was, was an equal opportunity murderer. They didn't always strangle either. A majority of their victims were found attacked from behind with thick zip ties pulled tight around their throat. But some were strangled with guitar string. There were even some stabbings and hit and runs in those areas that remained unsolved, and those were linked as possibly connected. Any survivors of the attacks described their assailants as wearing forest green hooded sweatshirts, with the hoods up over their head. But they never were the same heights or builds. Some were described as tall and skinny, others were described as short and stocky, and any combination of the two. Johnny was helping his mother one afternoon with the day-to-day tasks around the mortuary. They had a woman who was downstairs getting ready to be prepped for cremation. She died under strange circumstances that the police deemed an accident. She had left her car running in her garage for too long without opening the door and was overtaken by the fumes. Johnny didn't think it was possible for someone to be that forgetful and made an excuse to head down to the cellar where the crematorium was. The 40-something-year-old woman was lying naked on a stainless steel table covered by a white sheet awaiting Hatch to come and begin the process. Johnny stepped inside and slowly closed the door behind him. He stood over her body for what felt like forever, not knowing what would happen or really if anything would happen. He struggled for years thinking that maybe what happened to Mr. Sacco was in his imagination. Maybe the cat wasn't dead yet when he picked it up. Maybe it was just mortally wounded and was in a daze and it took some time for it to finally succumb to its injuries. He eventually worked up enough courage to pull back the sheet covering the woman to her belly, exposing her face and chest. He slowly placed his trembling hand against her cold cheek. Her eyes snapped open and she sat up in a shot. Johnny stumbled back startled. This was and wasn't what he was expecting both at the same time. She was just sitting and looking into the boy's face. Johnny didn't know what to do. He looked up at the clock on the wall and saw it was 2.30. His father wouldn't be back for at least another 45 minutes, and Mom almost never came down into the basement. He would have a tough time explaining this if someone would happen to walk in. He finally worked up the guts to speak. Uh, hello? He said. In a dreamy, almost detached voice, the woman replied. Hello. Do you know where you are? The woman slowly turned her head and looked around. It would appear I am in a crematorium, preparing to be cremated. Yeah. You're dead. Did you know that? Yes, I know that. What's your name? Tiffany Monroe. Do you know how you died, Tiffany? Yes. Can you tell me how you died? I started my car before I opened the garage door. I got distracted after I spilled my coffee in my cup holder and on my passenger seat. I was so worried about cleaning up the mess, I forgot to click the door open with the opener remote that sat clipped on my visor. Before I knew it, I was getting very tired, and then I closed my eyes. So it was just an accident. 
Johnny was speaking to himself out loud, but the woman still answered his question. Yes. Johnny didn't know what else to say. He was completely freaked out, but he was also pumped with a nervous kind of excitement. He was preparing to ask her if she had anything she wanted anyone in her family to know. He would write an anonymous letter or something like that, but she closed her eyes and laid back down. He walked over to her slowly. Tiffany? He reached out and touched her face again, but nothing happened. He looked back up at the clock and saw it was 2.45. From that day forward, Johnny was bursting with curiosity about this gift. Over the course of many years, he learned a lot about it. He had learned that he only had about 14 minutes worth of time before the bodies returned to being dead. During that time, though, the corpse would have to answer and do anything that was asked of it. He wasn't 100% sure why, and neither were the bodies. They just told him that they had to. This got John to thinking. He could learn a lot about people. This was the perfect opportunity to do a people study. You will seldom get the opportunity to have people be absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, honest with you. During the time of his temporary resurrections, he learned that looks are definitely something you shouldn't judge people on. There was an instance when he had a member of a local motorcycle club on the table when John was in his early 30s. He was a big, burly man covered in prison tattoos. He had a massive heart attack while out on his motorcycle. The responding paramedics said he was dead before he hit the ground. Road rash covered most of the right side of his body. When the man sat up and John started with his questions, he learned that this man was a teddy bear. He ended up in jail in his early 20s on drug charges. But once he was out, he cleaned up. He learned that he had three children and four grandchildren, whom he loved dearly. Most of his time with his motorcycle club was spent planning charity rides. His club over the years raised almost $100,000 for a local children's hospital. The same hospital where every Christmas he would dress like Santa Claus and visit. Riding his motorcycle regardless of the weather because the kids liked to hear him coming. And along with his club pals, he would distribute all the toys they collected through donations to the sick kids. John had an extra large flower display sent to the funeral on behalf of the children at Our Lady of Hope Hospital. Another time... John had an 11-year-old boy that he was prepping for a closed casket wake. The boy was killed by a neighborhood stray dog that was actually a pretty beloved staple around the neighborhood. Bear, as he was called, was a German shepherd mix that would haunt the neighborhood alleys. He would sometimes visit the cemetery, and John would sit out back of them, behind the mortuary, and share his lunch with the dog. The dog was caught by the local police and put down. When this boy and John got to talking, he learned of the boy's hobby. He would catch strays in the woods behind his house. Cats mostly, but the occasional puppy. He would catch them and leave them trapped inside his dad's cooler that his father thought was stolen. He would leave them in there for days until the fight was taken out of them. And then he would duct tape their heads tight and watch them flail around until they suffocated. Eventually for this boy, though, small animals were becoming boring and he wanted more of a challenge. That's when he set his sights on Bear. He trapped the dog in an old dog crate that he found. He lured it in with half a bologna sandwich. When he returned three days later, the dog had more fight left in him than the boy thought, and Bear tore his throat out. He also popped his left eye and ripped the boy's right ear off. Last one pays for all. The flower delivery for the boy's memorial service was mistakenly given the wrong date. This gift or curse, depending on how you look at it, consumed John's life. 
In the years since discovering this, he has become more shut-in than he already was. After losing his parents, John became the sole caretaker of the cemetery, mortuary, and crematorium. His obsession with the dead made finding love impossible, and his only friends were the ones he woke up for brief conversations. He did do some good with it, though. Over the years, he submitted many anonymous tips to local, state, and federal agencies whenever he discovered something from one of his Q&As. He helped a lot of people get closure about things that may have taken authorities decades to figure out, or remain unsolved altogether. His heart broke for these people. He would do anything to make it a little easier for them. He held out hope all these years that one day a victim of the Strangler would end up on his table, and he would be able to help bring them to justice. But he wasn't so lucky. The Strangler was never caught, and there have been dozens of theories, but never enough solid evidence. At one point in the early 2000s, the police thought they had a suspect, but they were wrong. The guy they brought in was on the other side of the country at the time of the murder, visiting family. The night after John's 55th birthday, he received a call from the local police telling him they were bringing in a John Doe. From time to time, John would let the local police use the mortuary when the state ordered a post-mortem. The man's body was found naked in the woods off the side of the road outside of town. He was stabbed in the belly and back over a dozen times, but he was also strangled, suggesting that there were several attackers. The medical examiner would be at the mortuary in a few hours to go over the body in hopes of finding traces of foreign DNA. The body would be left in John's care until they arrived. This is something that John has done several times. He had a good relationship with local law enforcement and all the agencies that they had dealings with. John was practically chomping at the bit. He couldn't wait for the deputies and the EMS guys to finish up their small talk and leave John to his questioning. John waited at the door for them to turn the corner, and once they were out of sight, he raced down the stairs, his heart racing a mile a minute. He knew this one would have something he could use. He approached the body and poked its fingers against its cheek. The man sat up and met John's eyes. Nowadays, John skipped with the pleasantries. He knew he had a finite amount of time, and he needed answers. Who killed you? John asked a bit frantically, his heart pounding in his chest. The Strangler. The man answered in that dreamy voice. How do you know for sure? Because it was my time. John had a confused look across his face. This is the first time a corpse didn't give him a direct answer. Your time? What does that mean? I fulfilled my obligations. To who? John asked, getting a bit annoyed now. To the Strangler. Wait, do you know who the Strangler is? Yes. Well, who is it? Who is the Strangler? Me. John stopped right in his tracks with his mouth hung agape. Wait, I thought you said the Strangler killed you. He did. So you killed yourself? No. Are there more than one Strangler? Yes. How many? Too many to count. John needed answers. What's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Tell me about the Stranglers. We have been around for far longer than records show, sacrificing for him, awaiting his return, to open Hell's gates and finish what he started. We used to organize at night in local parks around the country, given a body count, our offering, whether it be strangulation, a stabbing, a shove onto a train track, a hit and run. If caught, we play crazy. If not, we attack again. 
until our offering is complete. Then we offer ourselves to our brothers and sisters, our final offering. The age of the internet makes our organizing much simpler. Commenting on YouTube videos that have old age and no views. Our sect has spread around the world. We are the plague. We are legion. John's breath was shallow and panic-stricken. After all these years, he found them. He found them. When will they kill again? Now. Later. Always. How do you know who you're talking to online is really someone from your cult or whatever it is? Our usernames. They all end in Bo Peep, followed by a number. Marching sheep to their slaughter. That was it. John had something. Some info that he could possibly use to save countless lives. The man's eyes stayed on John's for a few seconds more, and then they fluttered closed and laid back down. John turned to head for the phone when his eyes did the same. The excitement was too much. His defect. His heart broke for the final time. Again, I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs> <laughs>